Who are you? What matters most of all to you? What is at your, your very core, your very center as a person? In fact, where are you centered? Where do you find your center? Our New Testament text this morning gives us this picture of the disciples, the disciples of Jesus Christ. These were men who had found their center. They had found their true home. They had found their center, their true home, in the person of Jesus Christ. For them, there was nowhere else to go. There was Nowhere else to run. We're continuing to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning in this occasional series as we pray for a refreshing weekend for our senior pastor, Preston Graham, with his family down in Georgia. And on the occasions when I'm preaching, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We preached on Ecclesiastes 1 some time ago and now Ecclesiastes 2. And we've seen in the New Testament text these disciples who found their center, their true home. There was nowhere else to go, nowhere else to run except Jesus Christ. But in this book of Ecclesiastes, we are shown our problem, our deepest problem. And Ecclesiastes will find, will hear this simple text that says, See, this alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us upright, but we seek out, we run after many schemes. We look for other places, other schemes to be our center. We run away from our true center in him. And in our text this morning, we're going to see this running after pleasure trying to find our center in pleasure. We're going to see this running after enlightenment, trying to find our center in enlightenment. And we're going to see this running after legacy, trying to find our center in our legacy. If you got here early enough, you may have had time to look at the little um, suggestion for meditation. It's on page 3 of your bulletin. And I want to just put this before us this morning as we begin, as we in just a moment pray, this simple summary. Pascal, the French philosopher and theologian and mathematician, he said, there are only two classes of persons who can be called reasonable. Those who serve God with all their hearts because they know him. And those who seek God with all their hearts because they do not know him. Please pray with me. Lord, we are human beings. <laughs> this means that we have, you created us upright, but we seek out many schemes. We are restless in our hearts. In fact, as Augustine prayed, we, it's true, we, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Thank you, O Lord, for the true rest that you give us in Christ. Make that real and plain to us this day. 
we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our hearts will be restless even if we think we have found our center in silver and gold, in something else, in pleasure. Years ago, when I was in the Navy, uh, one of my watch stations was the Combat Information Center, where I'd be the officer in charge, standing watch on board my ship, and it was usually a pretty busy responsibility, but there were times where, let's say during the mid-watch, from midnight to 4 a.m., let's say while we're making a transatlantic uh, crossing where there's just not much shipping around whatsoever. There were, there were times where this four-hour stretch in a, the darkened room of the combat information center would seem like it would last for eternity and just be the most boring thing and people would fall asleep and I'd find myself wrestling with falling asleep. And so I decided to invent a game to keep everybody alert. And the game was called Anything for Money. Anything for Money. And we would go around the room and we would pick on a person one at a time and we'd say, all right, uh, Seaman First Class, uh, um, Seaman Recruit um, Thompson, would you run naked the length of the hangar bay back and forth 10 times for $100? No way, sir, no way. For $200, well, maybe. And then we'd go to the next guy. In the news, at that time, somebody had, uh, a, Navy, um, a Navy officer had been arrested for espionage. He'd been selling secrets to the Soviet Union. So we'd go to the next guy. Would you sell secrets to the Soviet Union? No way! I've sworn an oath to the Constitution of this country. There's no way I'd sell secrets to the Soviet Union. For $1,000, no, what are you talking about? For $10,000, no, there is no way. For $100,000, what are we talking about here? All at once or in installments? <laughs> we just go around the room, same, same thing. Anything for money, anything for money. Maybe the, the uh, most uh, inappropriate uh, mischievousness moment was when we picked on a guy who was a newlywed, and he had just gotten married right before our deployment, and we said, so you love your wife? I love her. Would you ever divorce your wife? Well, if I could get remarried a minute later. No, 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 like, would you ever divorce her and you can't see her ever, ever again? There's no way I'd do that, sir. There's no way I'd do that, sir. And of course, you see where the story is going. You get up to $100 million. <laughs> so what was going on there? Well, I was mostly trying to keep us awake. But I was also trying to just simply be redemptive, expose. What is your center? Do you is, is, is it really all about money? Is there anything else that transcends riches for you? Anything else more important? Anything else that you would never leave in pursuit of silver and gold? We have in the book of Ecclesiastes this remarkable gift to us. We saw last time that the author is King Solomon, and he gives himself, he refers to himself as koaleth, Hebrew word for the one that 
congregates the people of God, the one that brings the people of God together. So he's often, it's often translated that word coaleth as the preacher. And we see in the book of Ecclesiastes this remarkable gift that we're being given. We're being given this gift where coaleth does this very necessary and vital and life-saving work for us. He essentially serves as a test pilot. You know the whole role of a test pilot. They'll go up in newly designed airplanes and fly them to see if they will stay airborne. And if they're about to crash, they eject. Um, And then they make adjustments to the model and then keep working on the model until it's proven trustworthy. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Koaleth is a test pilot, not just for the you know, pretty important task of establishing safe air travel. He's a test pilot for something of eternal value. Namely, where can you find life? Where can you find life? And throughout human history, we, as Ecclesiastes says, we were created upright, but we run in search of many schemes. Throughout human history, human beings have run after and sought and tried to fly this airplane or that airplane to find life. And there's innumerable attempts to find what the meaning of life is. And Koaleth does it all for us, as it were. Just look at in these verses, these first 11 verses, all these efforts to find life in laughter and good humor. There's a reason why every single major network's late-night television talk show is a humor-based television show. Humor, just cheerful banter. Is that what life is all about? Do we find life there? And then he talks about good wine. He talks about houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, servants, slaves even, accumulating a whole household of servants, herds and flocks. He talks about the animal kingdom. He talks about then the arts, singers, music. And he talks about sexual pleasure, concubines. And then he talks about silver and gold. This test pilot, or to put it another way, this, this lab rat, this human lab rat, so that you won't die by taking some experimental medicine that's never been proven yet to heal anybody, but you're going to take it? Koaleth has done all this for us. He's done all this test pilot stuff. He's done all this lab rat stuff. He's examined what life is and where life can be found in some hundreds, a few hundred years later after Solomon's time, the, the famous um, trial of Socrates, the Greek philosopher, and as Plato tells us about it, that moment in the trial where Socrates says, the unexamined life is not worth living. So here's Koaleth. He has examined Life. He has looked for sources of pleasure, sources of his true pleasure, true center. And, and notice that, by the way, in verse 3, we get a couple other insights here. That his, he, as he says, 
as he sort of launches this, this test pilot season in his life, verse 1, come now, I will test you with pleasure. He says to his heart, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But notice in, in verse 3, it, it's clarified. He's not just simply going to take the, the hedonistic route of pleasure, just drink and drink and drink until you drunk, you're drunk and you fall down. He's going to explore this whole world of pleasure with wisdom. So he's not going to do it in the unrefined hedonistic method. He's going to do it in the refined method of the Epicureans. If he's going to go for wine, it's going to be the finest wine. And so his experiment, looking for life and pleasure, is a thoughtful pursuit. It's not just pure hedonism. It's not ridiculous. Nor notice um, where he says, my heart found pleasure... Imagine this. He says, my heart found pleasure, verse 10, in all my toil. Imagine this. He found pleasure in his work. So we've all heard this wonderful sort of truism that if you, you know, follow your passion, if you find something you love doing, you will never work a day in your life. And Solomon found that. He found a pleasure. He took pleasure in his toil. He found that secret for making even toil, even work, pleasurable. But is that enough? Is it just laughter and more of it? Is that enough? Is it just wine and more of it? Is it just concubines and more of them? Is it just silver and gold and more and more of it? Is that where it's found? Or is it in even finding pleasure in the hard things, pleasure in your work? Does life consist in the abundance of your possessions? Jesus Christ himself asks us that in Luke chapter 12. Does it? Another way of putting it in this context, does life consist in the accumulation of moments of pleasure? Is that where life is found? Well, Koaleth says, no, this is not where life is found. Verse 11, I considered all this, and it is vanity. This is not where life is found. It's a striving after wind. This is not enough. It's not enough. I've gained nothing. I need more. And so he moves on. The test pilot moves on. As um, C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, just such an excellent little summary. Don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Did you notice that about everything in those first 11 verses? All of it. Silver and gold. Pleasurable work, singers, the arts, food, houses, all of those things can be lost. And C.S. Lewis says, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. This is exactly what Koaleth is telling us and saying, so I'm moving on as a test pilot. Verse 12, so I turned to consider this. Here's the next journey. And maybe what he's doing now is uh, inventing. So 
you know, I invented that silly game, anything for money. And so we've just seen the first 11 verses, anything for pleasure. Is that, is that what life's about? And now maybe this section, he'd be titling it something like, I'll do anything for enlightenment. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, just as there's more gain in light than in darkness. So it's not, it's not a trick question. Would you rather be enlightened or left in the dark? That's, that's not a trick question. You would rather be enlightened. Would you rather have eyes in your head or be blind? Again, not a trick question. You would rather have eyes in your head. Would you rather be walking, moving through this dark cave where there's no light or out in the valley, out in the sunshine? It's not a trick question. The light and enlightenment, wisdom, is to be preferred to foolishness and madness and being left in, in the darkness and despair of your own little convoluted world. Enlightenment is to be preferred. This is what Koalath goes on to say. He's the test pilot, and he's saying enlightenment is to be preferred. But do we find our center there? Is even that enough? Because enlightenment is to be preferred, but here's something that it cannot conquer. He goes on, verse 14. Enlightenment is to be preferred. It is better to be wise than foolish. But here's the thing. I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Everyone dies. Enlightenment cannot conquer the problem of death. The enlightened one dies just as statistically often as the fool. I remember some years ago um, when, when I was first pastoring in the, the research triangle area of North Carolina, the local paper, the, the independent paper, the sort of arts paper called, it was, it was called The Independent, actually. <laughs> um, but um, they had this advice columnist, uh, Esther Karp, Ask Esther. And people would write in letters, and she was really clever and playful and sort of snarky, and it was a very popular uh, column. And so I got in my head, I'm going to write her a letter. And so I wrote Esther a letter that said something to the effect of, I appreciate the advice you give about relationships so that people living together uh, to, uh, who aren't married can have better communication skills um, prior. You know, I, I, I appreciate the advice you give about this or that or this or that, but isn't it true that you're simply making people more competent in their foolishness? Because, as Pascal said, the last act is bloody. They throw dirt over your head, and that is it. Do you have true wisdom to offer? Something to that effect. Okay. So, they printed it. I couldn't believe it. They printed my letter. And this is what she wrote. This is what Esther wrote in response. In so many words, it's a little bit more eloquent than this, but in so many words she said, lighten up. <laughs> and then she said, denial. 
Denial is the great American drug. Try some. See, and I still to this day don't know whether she, I think she kind of got it, you see. Just to bring out into the light, denial as a philosophy of life. I think she was, by bringing out the light, mocking it and giving credence to the very premise of my letter. This is what Koaleth is doing. Yes, it's good to be enlightened, but everyone dies. Everyone dies. We cannot be in denial about this, or we can choose to be by ignoring what Koaleth is saying, ignoring the book of Ecclesiastes. No, no, no. Instead, I would say to another North Carolinian, the, the Avid Brothers, their recent album, product placement, real quick. Okay, done with the product placement. But in their, in their recent album, they have this great song, Tell the Truth to Yourself. And it just begins very simply. Tell the truth to yourself, and the rest will fall in place. Tell the truth to yourself, and the rest will fall in place. Great American drug of denial or coaleth? Ecclesiastes, the word of God. Look around at reality and tell the truth to yourself. What can conquer death? We need to find a center somewhere where life and life eternal is present. And because even enlightenment can't conquer death, Koaleth tells the truth to himself. And he says, verse 17, so I hated life. I hated life. What is done under the sun is grievous to me. It's all vanity and striving after wind. He tells the truth to himself. He says that trying to find my center and all these things, even in enlightenment, it makes me hate life. Pascal also said, Man's greatness comes from knowing he is wretched. A tree does not know it is wretched. Thus, it is wretched to know that one is wretched, but there is greatness in knowing one is wretched. Man's greatness comes from telling the truth to oneself about one's wretched, mortal, limited, finite condition. There's greatness in this. Man's glory consists in knowing of our desperate condition. Man's glory consists in knowing of how unworthy we are of glory. So Koaleth, in a sense, is done with his laboratory experiments. He's done with his test flights. But in this next passage, what he then does for us is he leaves us with one more lesson. In verses 18 through 23. One more lesson. And this would be the sort of game, you know, anything for money, anything for pleasure, anything for enlightenment. And this would be, okay, given the fact that I can't find my life in pleasure, given the fact that I can't find my life in enlightenment because I'm eventually going to die, given the fact that I can't find my life in silver and gold and just accumulating more of it, well, what if I live with, with wisdom? What if I live with some pleasure? And what if I, I know I'm going to die, and so I'm, I've come to a peace with that? But what happens next? 
what happens next? And he talks about this dynamic where we can't control what happens after we go to the grave. We accumulate all this stuff and then it gets passed on probably, possibly to a fool. Our legacy just is left in shatters. We cannot control our legacy. This is, as it were, maybe it's the central verse of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, which comes up next chapter, and we'll get to this in weeks to come, where in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, we see that God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. He has put eternity into our hearts. This hunger, this longing for a legacy is essentially sort of like a a soft version of our longing for immortality. He has put eternity into our hearts. But if we're not fully telling the truth to ourselves about that, then we go for the soft version of that the minor league version of that, which is a legacy. I want to I leave a legacy. My brother, when he was pastoring in Cincinnati, he showed me this article that the newspaper came out. It came out in the newspaper back uh, some years ago about a very frugal school teacher who had passed away. And so the obituary for this, this Cincinnati area school teacher who had, had lived her whole life very, very frugally, just protecting her possessions and very, living very simply, $60 a month rent for this rented apartment. And, um, but that when she died, they found $200,000 in cash. It's like the old cliche, like literally under her mattress. And they also found her will. And her will designated that $7,000 of it would go to some local charity And the rest of the $200,000 was to be devoted towards building her a mausoleum with Corinthian columns, a crypt, a tomb. That was her legacy. That was her legacy. We really have no control over what comes after. This is what verses 18 and through through 21 are, are telling us. We cannot rule from the grave. Maybe we do build this mausoleum, but you have no control over who's going to walk by it and when. Who's ever going to see it or slow down and read anything about it. And so, Koaleth goes on, even if you have real pleasure and enjoyment in this life, and as one of your pastors, of course, I hope that for you. I hope that you do. And I know, I know you do, just, just with the, this morning's music alone. <laughs> You've been given great pleasure in this life, and I hope you have a life full of real pleasure and enjoyment. And then, of course, going on, we, we talk about this problem of death. It doesn't take very long for the Christian to connect the dots with that. So as your pastor... I hope, and it's of course our deepest hope, that you have assurance of your salvation. That you know that in Christ and his resurrection, 
Your body will go to the grave, but you will be resurrected with Christ one day. Boy, oh boy, this is what we long for for you above all else. And so we long for you to have a life of pleasure and enjoyment. Most deeply, we long for you to have true assurance of your salvation, that eternity, your resurrection will, will, Christ's resurrection, giving you a resurrection, will conquer the problem of death. But now in these verses, verses 22 and 23, here's the thing. Even with all those things, and I hope we all have all those things this morning. And if you don't have assurance of your salvation in Christ, that's why Christ has brought you here this morning. So that you can track that down and seek after him. And I hope we all have those things. But verses 22 and 23 go on to say, yes, even with all those things. And now I'm going to use this term theologically correctly. Life is still so damned hard. Verses 22 and 23, even with all this thing, all this pleasure that he can give us and an assurance of our salvation, what, what, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? All his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the, heart, even in the night, his heart does not rest. Koleth is reminding us that even with what God can give us in this present age, this present age is by definition this present age. There's something cursed about this present age. In fact, Paul in Galatians calls it this present evil age. Even with pleasure, even with assurance of salvation, life is so damned hard still. So much worry and anxiety. And it's actually godly to bring on other people's worries and carry their burdens. By following Christ, you actually bring on more of the hardship of this world, more sorrow, more anxiety, more vexation, more worry, more sleeplessness. And so what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Well, this passage is not the whole of the scriptures. And the rest of the scriptures gives us great hope. But even in this passage, we see this remarkable turn that happens beginning in verse 24. This remarkable turn. Anything for money? Anything for pleasure? Anything for enlightenment? Anything for legacy? Even if you sort those things out and you realize, no, I'm going to find my center in God and Christ, what do we do in the meantime when life is still so hard? And so here's this remarkable turn where Koalath says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And now listen to this. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Now, if you follow along with the whole flow of the book of Ecclesiastes, God has only been mentioned once before this moment. God himself has only been mentioned once before this moment. And it was not a very encouraging mention of God when he was mentioned in chapter 1. That's where Koala says, God puts this burden on man. This is the remarkable turn in the book. And the turn that needs to happen in our hearts all the time is that here is God entering in in redemption. This is the first entrance of God into this storyline, into Koaleth's drama, where he enters in with grace, with mercy, with redemption. 
He draws near to us. And so this final section of this passage is the final section of our sermon where we see the details of what God does to enter in redemptively. You may remember, of course, that when we read the scriptures, we read them as a story of redemption. We read them as a story leading up to the entrance, not just the um, dramatic storytelling entrance of a theme like we see happening here beautifully, but all of scripture is leading up to the redemptive entrance of God himself in space and time, the coming of the Messiah into this world. And then when this Jesus comes, you may remember that he declares at one point in his ministry, someone greater than Koaleth, someone greater than Solomon is here. And that Koaleth has us on this journey leading us to the time when Christ himself is going to enter in, who is far greater than all the wisdom Koaleth has to offer. And Koaleth himself is the first one to say that. And so we read this passage now in the light of what Christ has come to do. And so we read these three aspects of his entrance into space and in time in these verses through the light of Christ. And so first of all, what do we see? We see that this pleasure that's being given, verse 24, is from the very hand of God. In other words, you haven't just merely discovered and stumbled upon pleasure. It was given to you as a gift. Even that simple dynamic of, if you, if you celebrate Christmas, of the wonderfully cataclysmic difference in my heart between if on a Thursday I went to Kmart and bought a pair of socks, but then on that Friday, that same pair of socks I found under the tree wrapped in a box for me and given to me by my son. A billion times more pleasure in that pair of socks <laughs> because I received it as a gift. Um, I don't know if Trevor's here because he is in both services, but um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pick on Emily then as the musician. Did you all create the phenomenon of music this morning? <laughs> music given to them as a gift that they then pass on to us. This is what this Koaleth is saying. I was going up, trying to find pleasure, my center in pleasure, and he's not despising pleasure. He's saying that if you just find pleasure for pleasure's sake, there's nothing that lasts about that. But if now you receive all the pleasure that God has for you as a gift from his hand. And I won't go way off on this, but this is a little hint of, even though this is an anthropomorphism of the hand of God, it's a hint that God is going to come and dwell in the flesh one day. And that as Preston and we talk about here all the time, we really can touch Jesus, his flesh, because we are his flesh. And all the gifts that God wants to give us now, all the pleasures, he gives to us personally, personally handed to you. But from his very hand, this changes the whole conception of pleasure. 
But then we also see in verse 25 this other aspect of, it, of him entering in, where Koala says, Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Apart from him. Pointing to not just that God is, Christ is a source of pleasure, but that he is the only source. Because he's asking the rhetorical question. Apart from him, where else do pleasures come from? And to ask the question is to answer it. When you know the God of Scripture, who is the God above and beyond all creation, outside of creation, that everything that is created, he's the one that created it. So apart from him, and so this is the other aspect of God entering in. This is not just some minor character or even a major character. This is the only character that matters. When God is in the formula, when God is in the test plane with you, when God is in the laboratory with you, all life is present, the one and only source. And so enlightenment then gets transformed because enlightenment now becomes not just merely the wonderful enlightenment that we can find on a horizontal level and common grace, but we can also receive actual enlightenment of saving grace, of special revelation of the scriptures when God enters in. And then finally, this third aspect of him entering in, verse 26, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. The one who pleases him. We're not going to pass too quickly over that because this is, Koalith is plain, the rest of scriptures are plain. That phrase, the one who pleases him, does not describe all humanity. It does not. And the very next verse sets out the distinction between the righteous and the sinner. So how do you know that you are one who pleases him? If you are one who pleases him, there is all grace and mercy for you. But if not, what then? What if you really have accumulated all the pleasure, all the silver and gold that could, this world could possibly offer? As the silly little phrase has, goes, even if you win the rat race, you are still a rat. Accumulating all these things does not address the very a, a question of your nature, your fundamental nature. Are you a righteous one that pleases God, or are you the sinner? where God is, in a sense, conspiring against you, as, as Koalath talks about. And, of course, this is where we wrap up the sermon with the whole of the gospel message that hopefully is not confusing throughout to anyone coming in the, into the life of this church throughout any one given worship service. We know this good news of justification by faith alone, that the status of being declared righteous is apart from your own inner nature and what you may or may not bring to the table. The status of being called one of the righteous ones and brought in and accepted is the gift par excellence. That is the silver and gold to be pursued, is the very righteousness of God found in Christ given to all those who will humble themselves and say, I need that. Accepting that grace is grace indeed. 